Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone who's interested in growing sales. This podcast is brought to you by the Criteria for Success Sales Growth Program. Are you looking to experience a breakthrough in your team sales? Have you tried sales training in the past, but were unable to make it stick? The Criteria for Success Sales Growth Program is a year-long engagement that combines sales and leadership training, a digital sales playbook, and a coaching and accountability process that will change your sales culture and drive sustained growth. Learn more at criteriaforsuccess.com. Our theme for the month of July is adapting to shifting markets. Here on the podcast, uh, if you've been listening, we've been talking to our guests about it, and you can check out the blog for best practices, information, and advice for you and your team at criteriaforsuccess.com slash blog. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and today's guest is a world-renowned sales consultant, coach, speaker, and best-selling author. He was named a top sales influencer by Forbes, and his first book, New Sales Simplified, The Essential Handbook for Prospecting and New Business Development, has remained a number one Amazon bestseller for the last six years. He just published a brand new book called Hashtag Sales Truth that has also reached number one on Amazon in the sales category, and I am really looking forward to discussing it with him today. He's got a lot of great stuff there. Um, so welcome to the show, and thanks so much for coming on, Mike Weinberg. Elizabeth, this is a treat. Good to be speaking with New York. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, so it's funny. Um, we were discussing this before we hit record, but we kind of traded places. I grew up in the Midwest and moved to New York, and I think you started out here and ended up in the middle of the country. That is correct, and I'm going to beg you when we're done to send me a real pizza when this podcast is over. So that's what <laughs> I, I miss most, say- aside from the people that will... Uh, you know, tell you to take a hike while smiling at you. I miss the pizza. I, I got very friendly and very pushy once I started moving here. But yeah, my favorite pizza here in New York is grandma pizza, which is actually more of a Long Island thing than a Manhattan thing. But I love it. Okay, we're going to have to have a follow-up conversation. So uh, <laughs> this is important to me. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Well, Mike, I just shared some highlights from your bio, but I'm sure there's a lot more that you could share with our listeners. So could you um, give a little bit more of an introduction, maybe talk a little bit about where your passion for sales and business began, or what were some of the key stops on your journey to where you are right now? Yeah, happy to. You know, the, the bottom line is that I love sales and I love salespeople. And my why in business is helping salespeople and sales teams win more new sales. And what's, what's funny when I, when I tell my story, especially to my parents, is that I grew up saying I never wanted to be in sales because my uh-huh. dad was a big-time New York City sales executive. And uh-huh. I, I think maybe because of that, I resisted and I thought, oh, I'm, I'm too smart for sales. I'm going to do real business or real consulting. <laughs> so it was not my plan. So there, there has been a lot of humor over the last dozen or so years as I've gotten known as one of the go-to, you know, sales gurus. It's kind of amusing to everybody. Um, and you know, what happened was I ended up in uh, a really interesting company based in New York City, uh, Thompson Medical Company, which owned Slim Fast Foods, when the company was growing like crazy back in the early 1990s. And I was the assistant to the CEO and owner of the company. So I got to travel with him and I got really cool assignments like buying our private jet and managing the flight department, which no 24 year old (laughs) with my level of experience ever should have been allowed to do. But the real life MBA came from getting to travel with the CEO who was the chief salesperson and rainmaker. And I got to go on all these sales calls with our giant customers like Walmart and target and watching this guy sell 
was not what I expected. And he showed me through his behavior and his approach and his actions that sales was much more about consulting and being a trusted mm-hmm. advisor and building a relationship and understanding your customer's business so you could bring them value and provide better outcomes for them. And that sales wasn't, as my friend Anthony Anarino says, it's not something you do to someone. It's something you do with someone to help them. So it was like a huge transformative uh, thought that sales isn't what I thought it was. And um, I ended up moving with that company into sales. And that's what took me to St. Louis 27 years ago. And, you know, the the world's greatest wife and three kids later, I just go home. And we love it here. Although I do miss a few things about New York, including the food. So, I have to say also bagels to me are the one thing yeah. that I've never had a bagel outside New York nearly as good as a bagel no, you, you can get. And, in you know, here, and, and this is a whole other conversation, but you know, they do stupid stuff like put fruit in bagels or there's it's disgusting. They slice it like bread and put cinnamon crunch on it. I'm like a bagel is <laughs> not sweet, but that's a whole other, whole other conversation. So, so plain I, or everything or garlic or something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, you know, I'm getting hungry having this conversation. Um, so I ended up in sales and ended up being really good at it. And I, I found mm-hmm. that the type of sales I liked best was not selling to resellers, like selling a consumer product to a retailer, but what we would call business to business hunting. And through various companies where I worked, I realized that most salespeople were good at, at many aspects of selling, relationship management, product knowledge, service, right, a client retention, but they weren't so good at the hunting aspect of picking up net new business, new clients, new new customers. And that's really where I thrived. And through a bunch of interesting circumstances, uh, found myself uh, at a consulting firm that, that kind of went belly up um, right at a time I was, uh, you know, had a high income need and I had three kids and a wife at home and uh, I needed to get going, making some money quickly. And one of my old sales manager friends said to me, why don't we start a consulting and coaching business? And I thought he was crazy. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm going to go get a job at a real company and make real commission because I can sell. And I've got three kids at home and a fat mortgage payment. But <laughs> I read about him in all my books. said, no, no, no. Try this with me. You'll, I'll do the sales leadership thing and you'll teach people how to sell. It'll be incredible. Well, he, he won the argument and I went with him and we created a very interesting little sales coaching consulting company. And it was my first time in my life I had to teach people what I knew about selling. And it forced me to kind of codify the content. And, you know, years later, I ended up going out on my own and uh, never thought I'd have a book. I mean, it wasn't even really on my mind. And I, I started getting calls from publishers who were reading my blog and saying, hey, you can write. You've got an interesting voice and a little bit of a contrarian view on selling. And you're a consultant. Why don't you do a book proposal? Well, I had no idea what the future would hold. This was not a master plan. And I wrote New Sales Simplified. And it turned my life upside down. You know, I didn't know. I mean, in fact, when I sent that book out to real sales experts to get their endorsements, um, I was a little bit cringy. I thought, ooh, they're going to laugh. This is basic. This is kindergarten level sales coaching. And all of a sudden, some of my heroes in the sales world were sending back their endorsements going, this is amazing. This is what the sales world needs. It's the basics. Everyone's gotten away from these simple truths. And that book has been a bestseller for over six years. Just last night, I went on and looked at rankings. It was the number one Kindle in the sales and selling category six years later. So 
when you have that kind of following and, and, and a book has that kind of life, it really changes your business and you get all kinds of phone calls from all kinds of companies. And that's really the fun I've had over the last several years is going into lots of different businesses and helping their sales teams and their sales leaders do a better job at bringing in more new business. And that's kind of what got me to where I am today. And, uh, you know, part of the reason we're having this conversation is my new book just came out. And I'll just, I'll briefly mention this and uh, then we'll see where you want to go with the conversation. But I wrote this book, Sales Truth, because I'm angry and I'm confused because I read all this stuff on LinkedIn about what it takes to succeed in sales today. And today's modern seller and today's new buyer. And there's this mantra from all these supposed gurus that, that publish stuff on LinkedIn that everything in sales has changed and nothing that used to work still works. And if you dare even try to deploy uh, some traditional methods like picking up the phone to get an appointment, uh, you're not only going to fail, but we're going to laugh at you because you're like a, a dinosaur or a Luddite for like from the dark ages. And, and I was contrasting what I read online with what I see in clients with my own eyes across the whole globe. I've been on five continents in the last year uh, teaching and leading workshops, and I have clients in every industry you can imagine from big data to big defense to big trucks and to little software companies to payroll services and plastics. I mean, I'm in every kind of company. And what I see with my own eyes is the people that are crushing it, bringing in new business, are deploying some of the very same best practices that worked five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. They've mastered the basics. And that's such a contradiction to what I see the supposed air quotes experts preaching today that I felt like I needed to punch back hard and debunk some of those myths and share the reality and the truth about what is working today to win big in sales. So thanks for having me. And that's what brought me to today. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mike. That is, um, I love your story. And I think um, just to, to kind of jump ahead to where I was planning on going in the conversation, but since you started this, I want to take us down this path. Um, I, I had a chance to read, I'll say, I'll, I'll be honest, part of your book. I haven't finished it yet, but um, in preparation for this call. And I do think there's this temptation, especially in sales, for people to always be thinking, I need to have a silver bullet. I need to have a magic new thing. I constantly need a new technology, a new process, a new system. And I do believe that there are things that are changing. And we have to admit that, you know, buyers might be a little bit different and they have access to different kinds of information and more information. But sales is still people selling to people. And a lot of times, the people who are having that desire to constantly look for a new thing, part of that is because maybe they're not as willing to work hard on some of the basic principles of sales that they've been told to. You know, um, it, it doesn't matter what crazy, trendy new things you're doing if you're not um, reaching out to your existing clients and making sure that they're happy. It doesn't matter what you're doing in terms of fun new things if you're not actually trying to generate new opportunities and um, and get out there and, and be visible in the network and work on your message. And so I think it's it's kind of a an easy, almost a crutch for people to say, oh, it's because I don't have the, the latest technology that my sales aren't up. And it's like, no, actually, <laughs> that's maybe not it at all. I, I wish you would just keep going. You don't need to stop, Elizabeth, because a, a double amen, triple exclamation point. I was just taking notes as you were like preaching incredible sales coaching there. Yes to all of that. And to, to Elizabeth's audience, she's spot on. And I think there are some things that are driving 
um, this craze for the new, the the hack, the secret sauce, the easy button, you know, call it what you want. Um, some of it is, is lazy and, and laziness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's salespeople that want the quick fix. They, you know, uh, I'm fat because I like New York pizza and bagels, right? <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a carb in, you know, energy consumption thing, right? And, but there are people who would tell you, no, eat all the bagels you want. And I can make you fit by blogging and by reading certain things. Like it's not, it's a, it's against the law of physics, right? It doesn't work that way. Uh, the same thing. Take this magical pill. Wait, I love it. You know, everyone, and, and in sales, everyone is looking for that magic pill. And what a lot of people are preaching about selling, and if you just had the right mix of inbound marketing and we put out exactly the right content to the right audience and you master social selling and perfect your LinkedIn profile and comment in the right groups and you put out your own Gary Vaynerchuk type videos, you will be a sales rock star. You never need to pick up the phone. In fact, buyers will get exactly 57% through their buying process and then call you when they're ready to engage with you and they'll be perfectly qualified. And they're going to be coming running to you because you put out all this content. And there are people teaching that today that is destroying salespeople. And typically it's the gullible, lazy, weaker, struggling salesperson who hears the nonsense that's being offered online as sales advice and they fall for it. So instead of mastering the basics, and you listed several of those things, people skills, being willing to pick up the phone, sharpening your message so it's compelling and others centered and about issues you address and outcomes you create for your clients, not about yourself and, and your own solution. If I mean, if salespeople master those things, everything changes. So there's this weird like FOMO, you know, fear of missing out that is just struck the sale and everybody's online looking for the new trick. And I'm going to be as direct as I can with, with your listeners here in all the companies I've been in, I have never seen a salesperson or a sales team struggling or failing because they lacked some new sales tool or some newly invented process. People who struggle, struggle because they haven't nailed down the basics. They don't have the fundamentals figured out and they're looking for the trick play or they're looking for the easy button and they're, and, and that's what drives them to spend all this time on LinkedIn reading this nonsense. So I am totally with you. It's about people and, and sales is still sales. You have a, a universe of potential clients who have needs and you have a potential solution for them. And the best salespeople get in the most contact with a strategic list of prospects or growable existing clients who have more needs that we could serve. And they do a great job building a relationship and telling a story and asking questions and building consensus and understanding the gap between where that client is and where they need to be. And if they do a good job in that process, they get opportunities to sell them stuff. And the more and better you do that, the more you sell. And that's been true forever. And I, I believe it it will be true forever. So yeah, I'm with you. Thank Absolutely. you for opening that can of worms. Definitely. Well, and I think some of the issues that we're that we're talking about are almost when salespeople are trying to step into the shoes that maybe other people within their team should be focused on. Um, a, a great story I have about this is a client I was working with a few years ago, and there was one of the salespeople on their team who was constantly going to management, we should start a podcast, we should have a blog, we should be doing videos. And it was like, do you want to be in sales or do you want to be in marketing? Like, it, I'm really glad to see when salespeople have these ideas. I'm not at all saying that salespeople shouldn't be bringing ideas to leadership. But 
there is a time for suggesting things and even sometimes a time for demonstrating um, a, a use case where you're, you're showing something and maybe doing a little bit of work. But then there's a time for putting your head down and doing your job. And especially in sales, when you have a job that's so measurable, if you're struggling in performance and then you're going to leadership and saying, we need this new marketing, we need these new tools, they're actually less likely to listen to you than if you're a top performer and you're saying, hey, you know, I do have this idea that maybe we should have a blog and I would be happy to contribute one post a month or something to that, but can marketing take that on? Um, but you do your job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's a, a better message for leadership to see as well. Yeah, I, you're so insightful the way you frame that. I have had dozens of conversations about this book and this topic, but you're the first person to actually call it what it is that way. And you started out the question by talking about salespeople who really want to do other people's jobs. And what I'll, I'll say to you from my exposure to this, and this is really what I highlight in chapter two in the book, where I'm taking on the nouveau experts, who I would, I would, I would suggest are really more marketers than salespeople. And their advice, their advice is really more about how to market than how to sell. Because what I see happening is exactly as you articulated it. There are salespeople who think their job is to market. So they, and they, I'll give you two egregious examples. Um, one, one just came out last week. There's an overseas sales expert that I have a particular issue with because he's always dropping these truth bombs according to himself. And, and he, he quotes things uh, out of context. And he says that no one, you know, in today's world wants to be interrupted and you have to change and you need to keep putting out content. Now, this is very transparent because this guy sells inbound marketing services. In fact, he's a reseller for the largest inbound marketing company, which I don't hold against them. They're, they're a wonderful company and they, they have beautiful offerings and I'm all for inbound. But what this person was saying was that Gary Vaynerchuk is your example. And he, and he linked to a Gary Vaynerchuk YouTube video where he was talking about the fact that we should put out 100 pieces of content per day. And, you know, in the first 30 seconds, Gary dropped four F-bombs and he's standing there, you know, in his middle of July and he's wearing his ski cap and his T-shirt. And this, well, I'm going to call him an idiot sales expert, is telling you salespeople, you know, you professional business to business, this guy's your model. So start shooting videos, put your ski cap on, right? Be really cool, put out 100 pieces of content a day, you're going to fill your funnel. Well, I, I'm sorry, but Gary Vaynerchuk, as successful as he's been and as big as his platform is, and I respect him, he's brilliant. But he's not your model for your typical business-to-business -business salesperson any more than Kylie Jenner is. And I bring her up because <laughs> here in the U.S., and I tell the story, I quote them in the book, where they put out an article that basically said, look at Kylie Jenner. And I didn't even really know who she was, right? This B-list celebrity who's amassed a billion dollars in net worth through her social media efforts. And the, the chief sales officer of this social selling firm said, listen, sales leaders, can't you see? Look at Kylie Jenner. She's the proof that social selling leads to real sales. She didn't cold call her way to a billion dollars in net worth. So I hear that and I'm thinking, are you kidding me? So, you know, I look up, I look up Kylie Jenner and I look at her stuff. She's known for taking half naked selfies. And I'm thinking, <laughs> this is your example, whether it's Gary Vaynerchuk dropping the F-bomb in his ski cap or Kylie Jenner posting half naked pictures of herself to sell her fashion and makeup products. You're telling salespeople that sell defense systems or consulting or banking or sandpaper or 
whatever software as a service that the, that's the model you should copy Kylie and Gary. So are you, that's why I, I'd be kind of curious to see them try. <laughs> intriguing, it's entertaining. It would be fun, but I, I don't think those are the best practices. And, and, and in my client mix of this crazy diverse group of companies I work with, the people that are killing it aren't making videos or posting pictures themselves or hanging out on LinkedIn all day. They're, they're doing everything possible. Yeah, they use social, they use all the methods, but they also use the phone and email and they go to trade shows and they ask for referrals. You know what I'm saying? Then they're, they're proactive. So all of that is just my rant to say, yes, your primary job is to sell. And all these new cool techniques, including social and video, are wonderful supplements too, but not replacements for traditional sales methodology. Definitely. I think there's a big difference between being an individual influencer and being a B2B salesperson. And Kylie Jenner is an individual influencer and she's very successful at that. And certainly if your goal is to become an influencer, you could look to big influencers and see what they're doing and follow their example. But like you were saying, um, I've had clients selling, you know, medical devices and selling, um, infrastructure equipment related to um, installing old-fashioned telephone systems. And there's not much that they do that has anything to do with Kylie Jenner, except maybe, I don't know, listening to um, <laughs> podcasts about what her family does, you know, as they're driving along to their next appointment. <laughs> yeah, that's well said. I Thank you for saying it that way. It's, it's, a, it's a relevance issue. Um, and what's seductive about it is it sounds sexy. And if someone was offering you, you know, hey, I'm going to make this easy for you. You don't need to do that ugly thing that no one likes, pick up the phone and interrupt somebody, right? And, or, or, and I have clients from, from construction supply to financial services uh, to internet providers that still sell by knocking on doors. And the, so mm-hmm. the answer is, you know, that, that doesn't work. You don't want to knock on doors. You don't want to pick up the phone. It's easy to make fun of those things. So instead, why don't you hang out on LinkedIn four hours a day and make a lot of comments and perfect your profile and create some videos and, you know, and you obviously everybody can write. So why don't you put out articles? I'm sure the compliance people in your pharmaceutical (laughs) wouldn't mind you writing articles about how, you know, it's it's ludicrous. I mean, there's industries where, first of all, most salespeople aren't wired to write for public consumption. And I'm not making fun of salespeople. I mean, I'm one of them. But I, I see enough salespeople's emails and proposals and think, wow, you need an editor. It's like I have an editor, you know? And uh, so, and then there are industries where regulations or liability would prohibit salespeople from making certain claims or putting out intellectual property. That's just not the primary job. And it's gotten confused because these people who preach this nonsense have gotten very popular because people want it to be true. I would love to be able to push the easy button and tweet my way to sales domination. But that's not reality for the business-to-business seller. Yeah, somehow I've never gotten a client from Twitter, um, much as I love Twitter. Well, here's, here's where it's disingenuous. Let me, I'll just pick up on that, Elizabeth. I have. And, sales, and, and this is where it gets weird. The people in that space say, see, you're a hypocrite. You use social. You promote your books on social media. You put out intellectual property and blog articles and then push them out on Twitter and LinkedIn. And my answer is, yes, I do, because I'm an author and a consultant, and people are buying my intellectual property. That's my service. Mm-hmm. 
But if I'm a business to business salesperson working for a chemical company, I think the best practice is to look at what other chemical salespeople are doing to be top producers and copy their behavior. Don't hold up me as an author or as a consultant or Gary Vee, who is a celebrity, right, as a role model that we should copy. Because I'm not exactly I'm not the B to B. I'm just what you, exactly what you were saying. So thank you for making this so obvious to people. All right, I'm going to touch on something that I have to say. When I read your book, I was scared to read. I know where you're going. And it now. put me a little bit of PTSD, and I was very pleasantly surprised. Although I, I did have to kind of close my eyes and take a breath multiple times during this chapter, but you handled it well. I'll say. So you. Um, you were a little crazy, and you wrote a chapter called Seven Powerful Sales Lessons from the 2016 U.S. Presidential Election. <laughs> you put that in your book. Um, so what inspired you to write that chapter? And what's maybe one of the key things that you want to share um, from that chapter that you think would be relevant to our audience? I love your setup for this, uh, and thank you for your amusement. I will tell you that um, I was a little scared to include this as well, um, but these, these lessons have been on my mind for two years. And in a book on truth, I thought I really want to share a sales coach's perspective on why Trump won and why Hillary lost. And he did some things sales-wise that helped him win. And she did many things sales-wise that caused her to lose. And uh, let me, I mean, I'm with you on the controversy. And I will tell you that my publisher freaked out when they saw this in the manuscript. And I had to sell them very hard on not taking this chapter out. And the compromise was I included that author's note at the front to further soften the perspective that I'm saying, listen to me, I'm not claiming this is a comprehensive list. And I fully recognize we are the most divided people in the world. And half of you reading this are going to freak out depending on which point you're reading. But I'm not, I don't have a political dog in this race. And I voted for myself because I couldn't stand either candidate. So this is like a sales coach's observation of some just powerful takeaways. And I'll give you one or two. Uh, I'll give you I'll give you the, the easy one about ignoring your current clients. And this one is funny for me to preach because I'm the sales coach who's typically yelling at my salespeople that I work with, stop over-serving your favorite accounts. Stop babysitting mm-hmm. and carve out time to go talk to new people that don't buy from you. Because if they already buy all they can, you know, over-serving them doesn't help you, which is true. But Hillary took that to a radical extreme. And she took the Rust Belt, those upper Midwest states where you're from originally, right? And she took them for granted that they were going to vote Democrat because for for years since Ronald Reagan, it's always been the the trusty blue wall, they call it. And she is the first major party candidate since way back in the 1970s to not visit a state since she was nominated. In other words, the state of Wisconsin reported that she's the first candidate that didn't come to their state for uh, like 40 years. And Wisconsin had voted Democrat in every election since Ronald Reagan. Okay, so it's been forever. She ended up losing the state of Wisconsin by seven-tenths of one percentage point because she didn't have the common courtesy to make the effort to land the airplane there one time and say, hey, Wisconsin, thank you for your support. I love you. I care about you. I need you. Please vote for me. She didn't show up one time and Trump went there all the time and he banged out the message. I'm here. We're going to bring jobs back to America. I, I, those other people are ignoring you. And they looked and said, well, Hillary didn't even have the decency to show up. You're right. We're going to give you a chance. So ignore your own customers at your own peril. Like there's a lot of risk there. 
Um, I'll give you. I'll give you one more. That's really one of my. I'm sorry. Did you want to jump in there? Oh, I was just going to say another great example. Um, if you look back a little more recent to 2018, and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, obviously, um, you know, close to me geographically, and. Um, famous, whatever, whatever it is that you think of her, she took one of the most established politicians um, in the Democratic Party. And she said, you know, he doesn't show up, he doesn't visit you. And she literally for months was walking. She, she would show pictures um, on social because again, her job involves posting things on social. <laughs> she was worn out the souls because she was walking so much and knocking on doors. And she had a major upset victory. And when you look at people who have those um, unexpected successes, it's usually because they got close to people and they were actually spending the time. And it's those basics. That's so good. And I want to, I wanted to say this to everybody who's listening because, you know, as they, as they refer to her AOC, right? She's mm -hmm. a very polarizing figure as is Trump. So please, those of you that are listening, don't hear any political tones from Elizabeth or from me. We're not endorsing or condoning or condemning any candidate. What we're doing is pointing out a best practice because whether you like or hate this woman and what she stands for, she won because of her best practice of being present, connecting with people and knocking on a lot of doors. So give her the credit and look at the platform that she's built for herself. Again, whether you like her or hate her or agree or disagree, take the sales lesson. And that's what I was doing in this chapter. And I'm amazed. There's 150 reviews out on Amazon for this book in its first month. No one has picked on this chapter. So I think I really was able to play it down the middle and just say, listen to me. These are sales lessons. I'll, I'll give you one more. Uh, this is my favorite one of the seven. For whatever weird reason, I like watching the political conventions every four years where they officially nominate the, the candidate. And I watch both conventions. And the one thing you can take to the bank every four years is that the Democrats convention will blow away the Republicans because and they just care more about it. And I don't know if it's the, the Hollywood elites that are behind the Democrats more that they, they lend all their support to high, higher production quality and a better show. But that's always true. And it was never more true than in 2016. Trump's convention was pathetic. Scott Bayo from Happy Days with the opening <laughs> night speaker. Like, they, no one got along. It was poorly produced. Uh, Ted Cruz spoke the night before Trump and created all this dissension. Didn't even endorse Trump. In fact, he told the delegates, vote your conscience. Like, it was the worst ever. Like, nothing about that, that convention worked. The next week, Hillary's convention was flawless from, from her perfect white suit to the confetti to the way everybody came together and Bernie Sanders and the love fest endorsing her, right? So by any judgment, her convention was an A and Trump's was a D or an F. Who won the election? Trump. And my lesson is be careful. Your big deal is not won in the boardroom on presentation day. You win your deal with all the work you do before and after presentation day. It's the consensus building and the discovery and meeting with different stakeholders or constituents, right? And, and understanding their needs and, and building the trust so that when you show up at the boardroom, they're already ready for you. And when you're presenting, what you're saying is so on target and relevant because of all the work you did before that. And then afterwards, it's how you follow up with the key stakeholders and, and assure them that you're the right the right choice for them. So you don't, don't try to win in the boardroom. It didn't work for Hillary, even though she destroyed Trump when it came to the conventions. 
So there's just a couple of the lessons and I, I would challenge readers to take a look at the other five as well, because there's a lot we can learn. There's a lot we can see there. Definitely. And um, I have to say, you know, the number of clients I have, the, their main sales training um, is presentation training. And the main role practicing that they do is everybody demo your presentation skills. You need to have it. It is one that? of the basics that you need to be able to master, but it is definitely not the be all and end all. And I've seen deals closed without ever having a presentation. It's, mm. it's not the most important. And, you know, it, it should be happening later in the sales cycle after you've done all that pre-work that you, that you were just talking about. And so often people think, I think it's because it's the easiest to measure. It's the easiest to see you did it well or you didn't do it well. You know, if you think of a practice, it's a lot easier to practice a presentation than to practice good discovery questions. But that doesn't mean it's more important. All right. So I'm turning it back. I'm interviewing you now. Keep going on this. So <laughs> this drives me crazy. Because and I have a chapter in the book that says this, stop rushing to demo and present. And what you're saying is that most training is focused on how do you present better, which I think is ridiculous because it's presenting and demoing are not a synonym for selling. They should be a very small sales process, right? But but especially in these tech companies, it's like someone's being evaluated by how many demos they do, or there's all this pressure, demo, demo, demo. And I'm like, you're demoing before you do discovery. That's sales malpractice. Right, like if you, if you if you went to a doctor because something was wrong, and and the doctor walked in and for ten minutes she told you how impressive she was and where she went to medical school and all about her specialties, and then for the next ten minutes she demoed you uh, a drug, right, and pulled out clinical trials and told you about all the research <laughs> and the one drug, and then after twenty minutes she wrote your prescription and said, "Here's what you need." Like, how much would you trust that doctor? You'd run. You'd like, you're a quack. You didn't take my clothes off. You didn't take my vital signs. You didn't ask me any questions when you're giving me a drug. You're crazy. But I mean, and it is, and everyone would agree that's medical malpractice. But in sales, why is it okay to show up in pitch mode and do the show up and throw up or demo before doing discovery or, or go in and do a presentation without having really understood their situation? I think it's a total failure. Why, why do you, aside from what you said earlier, that it's easiest to measure. Why, why is that the methodology and why has that become the way today, especially in technology? I don't get it. I have, I have two potential reasons and it actually, I think comes from two places where I see it coming from the worst. The first one is customers actually ask for it. It's not what they actually need and it's not good for them. But if you come in, they'll say, tell me what you got. They'll say, you know, I want to learn more about your product and service. If you ask, you know, what would you like to get out of today's meeting? Oh, I just want to learn about your offering. And salespeople just jump right into that trap with, you know, with alacrity. It's, it's very confusing to be able to say, okay, I'm very happy to show you our product, but can I ask you some questions first? So I know what I should focus on. That's literally like a little phrase of a pivot, but that switches the conversation around. I think the other place that I see this coming from most often is leadership because they don't think that salespeople 
can convey their message as well as they want them to. They think I go in and I'm talking to executives and I can have a real conversation about our offering and I can get to all the facts and I can convey all of our messaging. And I just don't trust that our salespeople do. So let's really work on their presentation skills, not realizing that the presentation is the smallest part of your message. Those are, those are my two guesses, but it frustrates me just as much as it frustrates you. Okay. I'm just going to say this. I'm not the host. I'm just the guest, but I think you listeners should go back and replay the last 90 seconds of Elizabeth's mini sermon because I guess I'm right with her and it's a small part of selling and it's it's not helping you. It is not helping you. It is the wrong thing to do to go in and pitch mode. You cannot be viewed as a consultant or a trusted advisor if you walk in in presentation or demo mode, period, end of story. Definitely. All right. Um, one of the other things that you talk about in your book that I think is really important and, and this is something that I see a lot with, um, with salespeople is that you say they should be proactive instead of reactive. This is incredibly challenging for a lot of people. They're saying, yeah, I get it. I get it. I should be proactive, but I'm getting 300 emails, you know, by the time I come in in the morning and by the time I leave at the end of the day, I've got a thousand more. And, you know, I'm constantly getting calls from my clients about service issues and, and they want to reach out to me and not the client service team. So what do you think that, um, that salespeople can do who are being pulled into that reactive mindset where they're really spending the majority of their time in account management rather than in selling? You said it. I mean, that, that's a top three issue in the sales world today. I mean, everywhere I go, the reason companies don't have more new sales is because the salespeople don't spend enough time working on new sales. And whether it's a convenient excuse or it's just the reality in that company or it's the salesperson saying stupid stuff to their clients like, here's my phone number. You call me anytime you need anything. I'm your guy. I'm your gal. I'll drop everything and take care of it for you. And while it sounds nice and in the name of client satisfaction and retention, uh, that can certainly work. What I tend to see is it's typically the lowest performing salespeople who overserve and babysit and default to account management at the expense and at the opportunity cost of not getting into working their really tough existing customers they could grow or their non-customers, mm -hmm. their prospects who are, who need to be seen. So it's it, I understand, Elizabeth, for many people in sales, it's not necessarily their fault that your role is set up where you are a territory manager or an account manager or an account executive. And, and your company runs lean and the service department either isn't staffed as well or there's they, the company relies on you to perform a certain level of fulfillment and service of, of your company's offerings, whether it's fighting customer service fires or in some business, even you're running out an emergency delivery to somebody. In the insurance world, you know, you're the one taking new quotes or doing policy updates and addendums. Plug in the, the blank with whatever fits your industry. The big problem is in sales, we are paid to grow revenue, not to babysit. And I, I, I joke in the book of one of my executives uh, from Australia who was screaming at, 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 in, in this meeting and he said, our job is to create demand, not to fulfill demand. That's why salespeople get to make more money, right? Because you, you bring value. And, and the way I say it is there's a whole lot of people that have become good at chasing opportunities but very few right now who are out there creating opportunities. And, and when you chase, you end up being late 
and you're the one that's you're not creating it, so you're you're not in a strong position to guide the prospect or the client. So you're you're playing catch up in reactive mode to either the prospect going down the buying path on their own, or even worse, or worser, as I like to say, your competitor got there first and they're leading the prospect and helping shape their buying criteria. So when you're when you're over serving your favorite customers, you're not out creating opportunities. You're also tend not to be filling the funnel. So you're in a service mindset instead of a business growth mindset. And 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 basically the only thing that I see work for this is self-discipline. And it starts with saying no. It starts with stop telling your customer to call you all the time and remember to sell your whole team. Because I remember being in sales back in the 1990s because I'm old and I have gray hair. And <laughs> I remember before mobile phones were everywhere. My, my first one was screwed into the console of my car. And I'm sure several of your listeners remember those days. Um, but before my those- dad just got rid of his car phone. Oh like my gosh, is that ago. great? He called it a bag phone. Yes. That, 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 um, yeah, they haven't died all that long. Ago, I have so to funny. say. That only lasted a long time. <clears throat> but I remember when uh, sales was actually a lot more fun because during the day in the mid 1990s, I'd be out selling. And a couple times a day, I would pull over and find a payphone, and I would use my calling card. I know this is like a foreign concept to younger people. I would pull out a <laughs> calling card. It was a credit card used to make phone calls. And I would dial in to my company's voicemail system, and I would have two or three messages, usually one from the company with some kind of announcement or something they needed, and then a couple from customers who had a sales need. But customers didn't call salespeople all day long, or and this is even, you know, email was basically even new at this point because there was a service department and they knew you were out selling. You didn't have a cell phone. If they needed something, they called service. How idyllic calling customer service for service help. But today because we're all addicted to our phones and we're like indentured servants basically to our customers. And they think they can text us any request. And they and we think, well, I'm going to handle it better than customer service anyway. It's my client. They need me. They love me. I, they, if I don't do it, no one's going to do it well. So I'm going to spend all my time in reactive mode helping out my clients. It all sounds good, and it does make your existing clients happy. But the big problem nobody wants to talk about is all these salespeople not making their quota or their territories aren't growing or they're not increasing their book You know, in the, in the real estate or insurance world because all they do is serve and they become glorified customer service reps. My one friend calls them CSRs with a car and that's not sales. <laughs> so territory manager is a bad title, right? When I hear people going, I got to cover the territory. I've got to maintain it. I got to protect my book. Like that's like a maintenance thing, but that's not a growth thing. So that was a heck of a long answer, but it's, it's a discipline. It's how you view your job. It's protecting your calendar and carving out chunks of time to proactively pursue prospects and growable accounts where you can find more business. Definitely. I think it's it's so incredibly important. Like you said, um, it's funny. We haven't really touched on what we have. Um, I, I didn't ask you a question about our theme for the month of July, which is adapting to shifting markets, but you've talked a lot about that. You know, buyer expectations may have changed, but part of that is that we're setting bad expectations. And customer behavior may have changed in some ways, but we need to figure out how can we still fulfill those basic sales functions 
even with the new technology and new systems and new ways that buyers are engaging. And we can still do that, but it's up to salespeople to really drive that agenda and make sure that you're going through the steps that you need to and that your buyer needs in order to really make an effective, informed buying decision. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I'll, you know, I'll, I'll add to your theme, and I, I like your theme for the month, adapting to change and shifts in the marketplace. And and one of the biggest shifts that we've all had to deal with in the last decade in sales is that the buyer doesn't need you for information. In the old days, it was easy to get meetings because customers wanted to be educated. So they'd see salespeople because one, it was potentially a free lunch or entertainment or a distraction from something boring going on. Today, mm-hmm. a lot has happened that, that the buyer doesn't need you. Uh, the internet has changed everything so that they don't need you for info. It's all available at the, you know, a touch of a screen or click of a mouse. The other thing going on is that so many companies are running so lean buyers, whether they're senior executives or they're low level procurement people, they don't have a lot of time, right? They're not, they're not looking for a meeting because they're Mm -hmm. all overwhelmed and doing multiple people's jobs. So it's not the information they need. What they need is insight and value. And they need to understand how you're going to help them and what business problems you're going to solve and and the issues you address for your clients so you can show them how you can take them from point A to point B. If you can't bring value and someone doesn't leave your early stage sales call thinking, wow, that was valuable. I, uh, I need to see those people again because I learned a lot here. I was challenged. I am now thinking about this, this issue differently. Hmm, I'm realizing I have a suboptimal situation and that provider, that salesperson may be able to give us, give us a better future. If you can't make that happen in a sales call, you're useless. Like you're not a walking brochure. And I I have clients and there's a chapter in the book. You can sell at a higher price and you can sell older product because if you live by the product, you're going to die by the product. You don't need to go in with and do a feature dump. You got to go in and understand how you're going to help the customer. And every customer wants to improve results reduce costs, mitigate liabilities, whatever the thing is that they're dealing with. They've got initiatives. They want new and better outcomes. If you can show how, you're going to get all the time in the world from the right people. But you can't be, go ahead. You can't do product dumps and features. That's not going to do it. Definitely. Um, we were talking before we started recording that I have the New Yorker um, interrupty style of talking, so I keep doing it too, sorry. But um, one of the things that we see so incredibly often is you can meet with somebody and they'll say at the beginning, oh, you know, I only have 30 minutes, I only have 20 minutes. And when you can tell that you've engaged somebody, when they, you know, they get up during the meeting, they'll, they'll lean out to their assistant, oh, can you move my next call? Or they'll say, uh, let, me, let me quickly handle things. I need to get out of my next meeting because they want to stay talking to you. And guess what? They do that when you're adding value, when you're asking the right questions, when you're really helping them discover something they don't know they don't know. Um, not just going in and saying, you know, let me let me quickly run through my whole deck in the next 15 minutes so we you know, can use the time that you have. <laughs> yeah, that's it's all about value, period. And uh, I'll, I'll, all right. One, one quick tip in here. Go ahead. One quick tip. Um, a lot of times we're on a sales call and it's not going well. And we get we get a prospect who's you know playing it close to the vest, and every question we ask, they, they kind of cross their arms, like, "Oh, we're good, we got it covered." And you're like, "Come on, you agreed to meet with me. I know, you, I know you got issues." One of the things that I've I've taken to saying to clients in that situation or that prospect is, "Let me just ask you a question. I, I love that you're happy, but I just want to know, are you like ten happy, or more like six happy?" 
And I say it just like that. A little <laughs> smile, a little tone in my voice. And I've got a bunch of salespeople trying this now. It's amazing what happens when you pause long enough and say, hey, are you like 10 happy or are you more like six happy? And if you sit there and let the awkward silence build, I cannot tell you the percent of time I've seen at work where the prospect sits there and they think and they finally go, you know, there's this one thing. And then they uh-huh. start, uh, open up and share with you where it's not perfect. And it's, it's because we pause long enough to ask a, uh, an intriguing, even somewhat inappropriate question to get someone off center a little bit. So I just would challenge listeners, try that. Ask them. Ask them why they invited you in. Ask them if they're really 10 out of 10 happy or maybe it's more like six and see what they say to you. Because if they are 10 happy, you're not selling them anything. No one changes when they're 10 happy. In fact, I just say, hey, you know what? That's awesome. Congrats. I'd love to be your backup. Call me if you're ever not 10 happy. But a lot of times they go, Definitely. you know, and then they tell you, right. there's a tip. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I'm looking at the clock and I have had so much fun in our conversation, but I'm going to squeeze in two quick more questions um, and then let you go. So um, first of all, what I, I, obviously people are reading your books and should be reading your books. And um, according to those Amazon numbers, they are. But what are some of your other favorite books that you would recommend to our listeners related to sales or business growth? Wow. I, uh, I have so many sales books that I love. Uh, I'm almost afraid to mention them because I have so many friends that are, that are sales, sales authors. <laughs> it's dangerous. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to point people a different direction. I'm going to give you some non-sales books that have been very impactful to me in the last couple of years. All right. Wonderful. But one of my favorite new authors is not, he's not new, but he's new to me. John Gordon, J O N Gordon. Mr. Positivity, his book, The Energy Bus, was like transformative for me. Very short book, allegory about positivity. And uh, it hit me like between the eyes and it's been so helpful to me. He's Mr. Positive. He's got all kinds of books, best-selling author, great follow on Twitter, uh, John Gordon. Um, Michael Hyatt, uh, michaelhyatt.com, he's huge. New York Times bestseller mm-hmm. author. Uh, his newest book, Free to Focus, Free to Focus, has been very powerful. I've seen him speak. I went to that workshop. I even bought the book just recently. Um, it's about getting focused on things that actually move the needle. And that, so you can work hard mm-hmm. and play hard and, and learn how to say no to unimportant things. So you delegate or extricate yourself from them to move the needle on high value activities. And if, if there's anything I could coach salespeople on, if you would spend more time on the things that actually move the needle and less time on nonsense, so you'd have more mm-hmm. energy, more discipline, my gosh, you'd have huge productivity increases. So uh, I'd go there. And then there's really an interesting book by a man named Cal Newport. And it's not really for salespeople, but my assistant made me read this book last year. It's called Deep Work. And Yes. I love that book. I'll let you talk about it. I mean, what, give me your, your one or two sentences and I'll, I'll give you mine because it, it, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm the mental wreck he's talking about. Definitely. Well, um, I, I like to read obviously about sales and business. And I think it's important for me just in terms of, um, in terms of subject matter expertise and, and being able to speak to things, but I personally find more value and I get a lot more out of reading these books that are more about, um, kind of your mental approach and, and how do we focus as individuals? I have seen my attention span shrink drastically. I watch, uh, you know, I see a video that's five minutes long and I'm like, I can't devote five minutes to watch a video. That's, that's insane. I used to be somebody who could just sit and focus and read an entire book. And I can still do that on vacation a few, you know, a couple months ago, I read six books on vacation, just like lying on the beach reading. But, um, 
you know, I, I noticed that, you know, in our open office plans and in our, just the way that our days are set up, we don't have time to really sink into work. I look at the quality of work that I produced years ago and I'm like, I don't know that I could do that now with my attention span, with the way I get interrupted. And Cal Newport's book is all about that deep focus and the time that it takes to actually get really into a space of working at a higher level and being more effective, more productive. And it's just amazing how our society and our, our technology and our, our environment is pulling us away from this. And it's really for a lot of us what it takes for us to be successful. Boy, that's good. <laughs> so there's two endorsements for Cal Newport, Deep Work. Uh, it, it helped me. And, and it's it's it applies to sales. It applies to authors. It applies to anyone. Mm-hmm. If you don't get away and find a quiet place where you can work uninterrupted in small blocks of time so your brain can really attack, you're never going to produce results. And that's true for everybody. So there's a couple great resources from John Gordon, Cal Newport, Michael Hyatt. Great, great recommendations. And, um, you know, a lot of this stuff that's written, uh, it's written for professionals and salespeople are professionals. And so if you're just reading sales books as a salesperson or a sales leader, really think about um, taking that step back and thinking about yourself as a general business professional. And a lot of these best practices will help you in your day to day, as well as help you when you apply them to sales. All right, Mike, this has been a ton of fun. If you want people to learn more about you and your book, where should they go? Well, first of all, thank you. This has been a totally energizing conversation. I've loved speaking with you beyond even just the pizza and the bagels. (laughs) That seems like a long time ago. (laughs) Uh, My website is real easy. It's mikeweinberg.com, W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, mikeweinberg.com. And I'm real active on social channels, Instagram and Twitter in particular, Mike underscore Weinberg. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here, Mike. I think our listeners are going to really appreciate this conversation. And thank you to all of those listeners for tuning into the show. You can find the notes for today's show and resources for everything that Mike and I have been talking about at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 171. Tune in next week for a very special episode with Amy K. Hutchins. I actually recorded that before this conversation, and I had so much fun talking to Amy K. I'm sure our listeners will really enjoy that one as well. In the meantime, check out this Friday's inspiration, where Michaela, who is our marketing and sales assistant, will share a great quote that is sure to inspire you. As a reminder, if you have any feedback, topics, questions you want us to address, or suggestions for guests on the podcast, you can email at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. If you are enjoying the show, please, please, please subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and you can leave rating or reviews wherever you find your podcasts. That'll help more people find the show, and it lets us know where we have room to improve. Remember to follow us on Twitter at let's underscore talk underscore sales. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ariana Miskell, Laura Marchoff, and me, Elizabeth Frederick. Happy selling!